This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Floating trees, scouting locations, Giga Moon, Mother's Day, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 341 for Sunday, May 14th, 2023. And as usual, I'm covering the latest news stories from Petapixel that caught my eye for this past week. But first, I wanted to wish a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the world. You ladies do a lot of work throughout the year, taking care of the family, taking care of the children, taking care of the home. Hopefully you have good husbands like myself who help out their wife as much as possible around the house. I have it kind of easy now because it's just Tina and myself. All our kids are grown and out on their own now. So it's not too hard for us to take care of the house ourselves, you know, when there's just the two of us. But hopefully, uh, moms, you'll get a fabulous dinner, hopefully a dozen roses, a nice card, and some awesome gifts. Here's to you, moms. This bizarre World War II photo with floating trees is not photoshopped. This mind-bending World War II photograph with floating trees may look like it's an optical illusion or cloned on Photoshop, but it is actually a real image. In the surreal image, which is part of the Finnish Defense Forces photographic archive, a Finnish army car drives along a road a few miles from the border with the Soviet Union. Above the vehicle, a line of mysterious pine trees eerily levitates in the air. The picture was taken in 1941 by a Finnish photographer called Oswald Hendenström as his nation tried to shield itself from neighboring Stalinist Russia during World War II. A year earlier, Finland had warily agreed to fight alongside Nazi Germany in a bid to protect itself from Soviet invasion. Hendenström was fighting under German command when he found himself beneath the floating trees and decided to take a photo. According to Atlas Obscura, the hanging trees are not an optical illusion or cloned on Photoshop, but a type of camouflage used by Finland during World War II to disguise the road from Soviet forces. Almost 75% of Finland is covered in trees, and the Finnish decided to make use of the country's natural resources as a method of concealment and defense in World War II. The Finns didn't have funds to buy artificial camouflage such as nets in vast quantities, military historian Colonel uh, P- Petrie Joko tells Atlas Obscura, so they used trees, leaves, and foliage to confuse the enemy. The Finns have camouflaged the road to Rat, about 10 kilometers from Russia, with pines hanging in the air because right on the border there is an observation tower erected by the Russians, Hendenstrom's writes in a caption accompanying the photo. Pine trees were hung from cables which were connected to poles on the right-hand side of the road. The trees were strategically installed there to obscure the view from the nearby enemy Russian tower. Atlas Obscura reports that the erected trees would not conceal the road from aircraft, but if Russian forces were looking at the area from a watchtower, all they would be able to see was an uninterrupted line of trees. However, on ground level, the trees could bizarrely look as though they were levitating. 
And due to the angle of Hendrenstrom's photo, the cables on the first row of trees cannot be seen, which further adds to the impression that the pines are floating in midair. During World War II, trees were used to camouflage everything from tanks to heavy artillery, while white sheets were used to disguise vehicles in the snow. The image is now part of the Finnish Defense Forces photographic archive, which contains 160,000 photos captured between 1939 and 1945, when Finland fought two separate wars against the Soviet Union. And this was an interesting article, and that's why I wanted to share it. If you know anything about me, I'm a huge World War II history nut. And I just thought this was really cool. And it was, oh, granted, a clever way to disguise the road, at least from the Russian watchtower that was right across the border. But again, it wouldn't have fooled air, aircraft in any way, shape, or form. But they had to use what they had on hand. And I thought that was pretty clever. How to, get prop, how to properly scout locations to get gorgeous landscape photos. When I first started doing landscape photography, visiting new locations used to intimidate me a lot. I think part of me would feel the anxiety and pressure of needing to get a good shot, and oftentimes I would not use the proper tools to set myself up for success. In this article, I share the tips and techniques I have developed over the years for taking landscape photography in new locations. These tips not only help improve the quality of my photos, but also make the experience more enjoyable. Tip one, move. Explore your, uh, exploring your surroundings may seem like an obvious tip, but it's important to keep in mind. Scouting for landscape photography is all about taking a walk and discovering interesting compositions that catch your eye. If something in the distance intrigues you, it's worth taking the time to walk towards it. The worst case scenario is that you get some exercise and don't find anything noteworthy. However, the best case is that you discover something unique that requires a bit more effort and determination. Therefore, make sure to walk around and not just drop the tripod in one spot. Get to know the area by foot. If you're not sure where to go, try to use your intuition to analyze the scene. In my recent video, I decided to explore the other side of the dunes to capture the directionality of the light. I chose the dune field that I thought would offer the most photographic opportunities, but I'm sure there were great images on uh, the other side as well. Sometimes I wander in random directions without any specific plan, and those spontaneous moments often yield surprisingly cool images. Tip 2. Use offline maps. When it comes to scouting for landscape photography, offline map systems are a game changer. Personally, I highly recommend Google Offline Maps. By downloading the entire area ahead of time, you can track your route without relying on cellular service, which can be especially helpful in remote areas. As you explore, be sure to mark pinpoints of any interesting compositions you find. These will serve as valuable references the next time you visit the location, especially if you need to find your way in the dark during sunrise shoots. For longer hikes or more complex routes, another excellent app to consider is Gaia GPS. This app allows you to track your exact route, which can be useful when scouting new locations or planning multi-day trips. In addition to maps and navigation tools, consider using a photo planning app like PhotoPills. This app is ideal for determining the direction of the sun or moon at any given time, making it easier to plan for specific lighting conditions. It's especially handy for Milky Way photography, as it can help you determine the best time and location for capturing those stunning night sky shots.
Finally, don't forget to take reference images on your phone while you're out shooting. These can help you remember specific compositions or lighting conditions, making it easier to replicate or refine your shots on future visits. Tip 3. Time One of the most rewarding aspects of landscape photography is exploring new locations and discovering hidden gems. It's important to remember that getting great shots takes time, patience, and a willingness to explore. So instead of rushing through your scouting process, approach it with excitement and curiosity. Plan to spend a few hours really immersing yourself in the location and taking in all its unique features. The more time you spend exploring and getting to know the area, the more rewarding it will be when you find that perfect composition. So enjoy the process and just have fun with it. Relax, be prepared, and enjoy. Don't forget that photography is ultimately about having fun. So when you're out in the landscape, make sure to enjoy yourself. Putting too much pressure on yourself to capture the perfect shot can lead to frustration and disappointment. Instead, remember tip three, that time is your best friend in landscape photography. Give yourself plenty of it to explore and get comfortable in the environment. By using tools like offline maps and taking some time to plan beforehand, you can feel more confident and prepared when you're out there. But how much planning you do is up to you. Some photographers prefer to scout extensively on Google Earth, while others enjoy the spontaneity of showing up and exploring on the fly. For myself, I like to do a mix of both. Regardless of your approach, scouting is a crucial part of landscape photography. And the more you do it, the more you'll develop your own unique style and techniques. So take these tips to heart and get out there and see what works best for you. And I have to agree with the author, Michael, on this uh, because I do things the same way he does. I do a little bit of strategic planning ahead of time using Apple Maps or Google Maps or Google Earth or whatever the case may be. But then I also like to be spontaneous when I get to a new location and just kind of wander around, see what catches my eye, see if there's anything interesting that I think is going to make for an interesting composition and then go from there. So which one works best for you? You'll have to experiment. Try it both methods. A try a mix like Michael and I do and see which one you prefer for your personal style and workflow and then go from there. Photographer's incredible gigamoon image is made from 280,000 photos. Astrophotographer Andrew McCarthy has captured a gigamoon, a 1.3 gigapixel, highly detailed image of the moon made from 280,000 photos. It's an image that McCarthy has wanted to capture for a long time with multiple attempts thwarted by poor conditions. Quote, my hard drive is filled with dozens of failed attempts at gigamoon, he tells Petapixel. I watch the forecast for seeing conditions daily. This is a particular aspect of weather not visible in most forecasts that requires a specific astronomy-oriented weather map. I use astrospheric to keep me abreast of the ever-changing conditions of the upper atmosphere. McCarthy used an 11-inch telescope with a 2.5 times power mate, which ultimately gave him a focal length of 7,000 millimeters. Variances in temperature between atmospheric layers can cause the moon to look blurry and shaky when viewed through that kind of magnification. But on the evening of April 29th, the forecast was good, so McCarthy decided to take another crack at it. Quote, even with good conditions, it's almost like capturing through water with how much the atmosphere distorts each image, he explains. 
For that reason, I capture about 2,000 images at a time. Doing this on each section, then slewing my telescope and doing it again and again, eventually covering the full moon, is how these images are captured. Despite having relatively good conditions, there were still phases when it was less than optimal, so McCarthy shot the entire moon twice to try to cover for any bad panels. Eventually, he captured 140 panels, meaning he shot a staggering 280,000 images. Editing the Gigamoon. Quote, since my camera used for this was a monochrome, I still had to capture color, he says. For that, I used my 12-inch Newtonian telescope equipped with a full-frame CMOS camera. While it was monochrome as well, it has a filter wheel allowing me to cycle through red, green, and blue filters during capture to get high-quality color data I could add to the final image. Capturing all of the data required is a difficult task, but then assembling it into a coherent final image is further a complicated task, one that requires a lot of computing power. I incorporated drizzle to my images, meaning I had software interpolate data between the pixels to produce an upscaled image from the image stack, which took several days to complete, McCarthy explains. Once this was done, the entire thing was stitching together are stitched together by hand in Photoshop. It was done by hand to help me both look for bad panels and make minute adjustments to panel orientation to account for liberation, the subtle angle change of the moon that occurs during capture. After several days of assembling the image to make the editing tweaks that terrestrial photographers are more familiar with, such as composition, contrast, and color, McCarthy had to cut the image into pieces so his computer could handle the memory requirement. Overall, the image was cut into pieces and reassembled 10 to 15 times over the last week as I made these relatively small edits to ensure the final product looked flawless as a whole and went zoomed onto the surface, he says. McCarthy says his computer crashed at least a dozen times while completing the Gigamoon. To view the full 1.3 gigapixel image, head to this link here, which you can find in the show notes. To purchase a fine art print of the image, head to McCarthy's website. The full image can be downloaded from McCarthy's Patreon. And this is definitely an interesting and beautiful image. And if you remember, they've done stories on Mr. McCarthy before because he does a lot of incredible astrophotography. Uh, I think the last article had to do with some work he did uh, using tons of images to compile a realistic rendering of our sun with full detail, which you generally can't get from a standard photograph. Photographing a state of uncertainty, the coronation of King Charles III. When I made images documenting the mourning period after the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, there was a complexity to the situation that I wanted to convey. I wrote about navigating different manifestations of grief, as well as that grief in the context of the wider political relationship between the deceased and the citizens of the UK. Whether I was seeing performative grief or genuine sorrow, there was an underlying simplicity to my approach. An individual has died, and this is the mood in the aftermath. Translate that mood into imagery. In the same article, I wrote that uncertainty of the future is an aspect of loss, and I found a similar uncertainty while documenting the coronation of King Charles III. A funeral is a relatable event, and even the Jubilee celebration shortly before the Queen's passing were relatable as an anniversary. But what was there to really connect with about the coronation? 
Social convention is where people metaphorically convene, where they meet. If people aren't aligning that, then there is no convention or tradition. By this, I am not referring to taking a stance either for or against the monarchy, as those are clear boundaries that people can agree or disagree over. More that if one is supportive of the, of the monarchy, what does that actually involve? During the funeral, it meant grief, and during the jubilee, it meant celebration and reflection. However, these feelings were really grounded in the individual. The jubilee and funeral for the queen meant something more than feelings towards the throne and the crown. Queen Elizabeth II was a very humanized figure, even to her decriers. What does Charles III actually mean to people? I doubt many were lining the streets only because they were supportive of his environment mental message, switch Charles out for any other royal and the day would have gone the same. It didn't feel like it was about him as an individual. It was about the position, the gold carriage, along with the other regalia. As I stated, funerals and anniversaries are relatable traditions that everyone has or will experience. People gathered for the coronation, but that is effectively the extent of it. Is that the British tradition of coronation gathering together while someone else performs the ritual? Have you really participated in a tradition? If it's just a spectator sport, or is it just someone's, someone else's tradition that you've turned tuned into? Personally, I think the traditions that last are the ones that can be participated in on by everyone and passed down via the active participation. Even football has a team spirit behind it a personal investment and stakes that make spectating participatory, participatory rather than performative. With no stakes beyond maintaining tradition, what was the significance of this particular day? When I wrote about the uncertainty of the future in the wake of the Queen's passing, it was this same thread that I saw progressing during these coronation proceedings. What many took for granted during the Queen's reign now feels like a former Stability now left shaky, not quite an identity crisis, but identity nervousness. There was a crowd at Tottenham Court Road watching a live feed on large digital screens, and during the literal crowning moment, they let out a sort of collective awkward laugh. There was self-awareness that this was a silly thing that they were watching, but followed a few moments later by a few in the crowd calling a half-hearted God save the king. I think this was an interesting microcosm of general attitude, a crowd going along with things while feeling unsure about how seriously they ought to take it. This is reflected in the behavior of the establishment that does not come across as having a serious mandate for leadership. Controversial decisions around policing the coronation led to Apologies in the wake of arrests that are questionable at best, and at worst, straight up unlawful attempts to suppress peaceful protests. Time will see court cases and further controversies, all the while based on this lack of sincerity. What was left for me to document? Not tradition, as that was a one-man show with very tightly gate-kept press access, all of whom did a superb job at documenting within those confines. Not sincere celebrations, certainly not once the rain started and washed away most of the motivation for street parties. Not a powerful protest as restrictions were tight, which left any dissenting voices far away from the procession route. What did it leave me? Rows of tents as people waited to watch the procession pass, flags, umbrellas, and masks. People climbing barricades to watch a glimpse of the king in his carriage. 
I was reminded a little of my time in D.C. during the inauguration of Joe Biden. But even those photographs worked as a grounded story. I think my images from the coronation will only become relevant when worked into a wider body of work and can possibly represent some ideas around identity, uncertainty, and specific expression of authority. And I just thought this was an interesting article to cover this week, especially after covering the article from Petapixel about the Queen's passing. Um, she was a very large figure in life as far as the person herself. Um, she was very well known, very well respected, and she was the oldest reigning monarch that England has ever had. And her passing was definitely felt especially by our friends in the UK. And I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now, back to the show. And we're back. Making an impossible multi-season time-blended Milky Way panorama. Award-winning astrophotographer Mihail Minkov captured an incredible 360-degree panorama that shows two Milky Way arches, a shot only possible during a specific time. Minkov calls the image the eyes of the universe, and he tells Petapixel that it required a lot of planning. Quote, I've always wondered what the night sky would look like if we could see the two Milky Way arches from the winter and summer seasons side by side. This is practically impossible since they are part of a whole and, not, and are visible at different times of the day, even if they are separated by only four hours from each. Minkov explains. When Minkov says that the two arches are separated by just four hours, he's referring to the unusual time of year, March in the Northern Hemisphere, when seeing both arches is even possible in a single night. Quote, the shot has been sitting in my head for the past few months, and I finally managed to capture it, he says. Minkov's beautiful photo is a time-blended panorama that combines traditional panoramic stitching with its requisite images separated by four hours. The two arches of the Milky Way actually represent one object in the starry sky with part of it visible in winter and part of it in summer. Therefore, they are called the winter and summer arches. By winter arch, we mean the objects we can observe from October to March, roughly speaking, such as the winter arch of the Milky Way, mostly associated with the constellation Orion. By the summer arch, we mean the Milky Way core visible from March to September, the most characteristic part of which is the Milky Way core itself, the center of our galaxy, or one of the most beautiful, luminous parts of the night sky, Minkoff explains. Minkoff sent Petapixel a sketch of his desired shot, which shows roughly the location he eventually captured the time-blended panorama. It's vital that Minkoff found a spot that faced south, as that's where the Milky Way is visible in the sky from the northern hemisphere. 
He used Stellarium astronomy software to check the precise date that would allow him to capture the panorama images with both arches in the shot. He used the popular photography app PhotoPills to check locations. As it happens, the place Minkoff hoped would work turned out to be the perfect spot for his photo. Minkoff explains to Petapixel that he used nine vertical shots of the suburb arch, nine images of the winter arch, and 20 vertical images of the foreground for his final stitched panorama. He did the stitching using PT GUI and then performed additional post-processing in Adobe Camera Raw and Photoshop. He estimates the total time to create the Eye of the Universe is around 30 hours. He spent a couple of hours planning and preparing, six hours driving, a dozen hours in the field before shooting, four hours shooting, and six hours doing post-processing. It's a lot of time and effort for a single photo, but that's common in astrophotography and is a big part of why astrophotography is an incredibly challenging genre of photography. Minkov has many spectacular night sky images on his website and Instagram. The award-winning photographer also offers workshops. Petapixel has previously featured Minkov's work, including in coverage of his award in last year's Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition. Petapixel featured another of Minkov's photos in follow-up coverage. And you can find all of those links in this article in the show notes. And the final panorama that he got is truly spectacular. I highly recommend you stop by the show notes and check it out for yourself. Quite a feat. Rare white killer whale calf, Frosty, filmed off California coast. An extremely rare white killer whale calf named Frosty has been filmed off the coast of Southern California. In a video captured on April 25th by whale watching tour company Newport Coastal Adventure, the white orca calf was seen swimming with six other orcas near Newport Harbor in Southern California. According to Fox 5, Newport Coastal Adventure were tipped off about the pod's location around 1030 by another whale watching tour company. Quote, on just a few hours notice, we loaded three boats for a special trip and drove 50 miles before we finally found the CA-216 pod, Newport Coastal Adventures writes in a caption alongside footage of the calf. In the footage shared on Instagram by Newport Coastal Adventure, Frosty can be seen swimming alongside the other orca in the pod, which is known as CA-216S, with his eye catching an unusual white color. According to Newport Coastal Adventures, Frosty has an extremely rare and unique genetic condition that gives the calf a lighter pigment than normal killer whales. Frosty is completely white except for a grayish dorsal fin and head. The passengers on the whale watching tour were able to watch the orcas for more than two hours as they swam up the coastline until sunset. The pod even approached the boat on several occasions. The pod occasionally turns up in other parts of the world. They have been sighted as far south as Mexico and as far north as Canada. However, they have not reportedly been seen in the California area in over three years. Whale and dolphin conservation spokesman Danny Groves tells Newsweek that white orcas are not outcasts as some people may think. They are completely accepted in their pods. Several known conditions cause certain animals, including orcas, to look white. One condition is the extremely rare uh, rare leukism, which is a genetic condition that causes the unusual coloring and the pigmentation of the skin to be paler. The other is Chidiac-Hingashi syndrome, an inheritable immune deficiency 
that can cause partial albinoism. Frosty the orca is leukistic, which is an extremely rare condition in killer whales. Quote, probably there are disadvantages to the affected whale not carrying the evolutionarily adapted regular pigmentation similar to those faced by albino humans, such as reduced solar protection. Luke Rendell, a lecturer in biology at the Sea Mammal Research Unit and the Center for Social Learning and Cognitive Evolution of the University of St. Andrews, Scotland, tells Newsweek, Albino or otherwise uniquely colored creatures can also be subject to increased risk in the wild. For example, they will have less camouflage to help them hide from predators. Importantly, one big risk for any white whale or dolphin is the unwanted attention from us. Disturbing whales and dolphins disrupts their natural behavior and can cause them stress. And this is an absolutely interesting article. I absolutely love wildlife. And there's even a YouTube video from Fox 5 that you can check out for yourself to see Frosty swimming with their pod. A deep dive into ISO, how variants in dual native ISO affect noise. This is the ISO wheel on your camera, and sometimes it does nothing, says Syrup Lab in its newest video. Syrup Lab takes a deep dive into ISO, explaining what it is, discussing dual native ISO and ISO variants, and providing the information people need to shoot the cleanest possible video. The first step along the journey to cleaner video is understanding what ISO is and what it does. Quote, ISO is one of the first things you learn about when starting with video. And you probably know that if you crank ISO up, you make your camera more sensitive to light, Syrup Lab explains. This makes everything brighter, but it also makes video noisier. However, this is an oversimplification because with some cameras, increasing ISO doesn't necessarily mean increasing the noise in video. When shooting video or photos, although Syrup Lab is focused on video applications, there are numerous ways to make the footage look brighter. The user can adjust the shutter speed or aperture, for example. However, users can also increase the camera's ISO, often described as making the image sensor more light sensitive. When light travels through the lens and hits an image sensor, the sensor measures the intensity of light as voltage. The voltage is converted into a digital value using an analog-to-digital converter. When the values are too low, the video looks too dark. The sensor can't physically change to have larger photo sites. There are some software tricks that some cameras use to combine pixels into sites and that behave like larger photo sites, but that still doesn't actually change the image sensor. Cameras have a few options to achieve more signal and make video appear brighter. Syrup Lab looks at three cameras, a red Komodo 6K that controls ISO entirely digitally, the Canon EOS R5 that deals with ISO electronically, and the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera that has dual native ISO. To test how each camera handles ISO and noise, the Syrup Lab team correctly exposed each camera at ISO 12,800 by controlling light power. They then decreased ISO without adjusting lights and brought the footage back up to the initial exposure during post-processing. For photographers, this is like intentionally underexposing a scene by minus 4 EV and then adding plus 4 EV in Adobe Camera Raw. It's the same basic idea here. The three tested cameras also perform very differently in this test. Why? Syrup Labs points out that these cameras operate with different approaches to ISO. The red camera is ISO invariant, 
the Canon R5 is ISO variant, and the dual native ISO Blackmagic camera uses a top secret method. In the Red Komodo's case, ISO invariant means that changes to ISO are performed digitally and not at the sensor level. The footage is made to look brighter by changing the RGB values using software. ISO settings on the camera are saved in file metadata and then applied in post. For example, if a user shoots at ISO 6400, this is just footage shot at the camera's base ISO with a data tag that tells video editing software to boost the footage to that exposure value. The sensor didn't do anything differently because the ISO was changed. For an ISO variant camera like the Canon R5, the camera takes the voltage from its image sensor and increases it using an amplifier. This increases the signal at an electrical rather than a software level, resulting in more noise at higher ISO settings. It also means there is a difference between boosting ISO on the camera and achieving the same exposure in software during post-processing. Dual native ISO cameras are like ISO invariant cameras, but they have two analog circuits on the sensor for different lighting situations. The steps in between are handled digitally. Panasonic uses dual native ISO in some of its cameras and describes the technology as follows. Quote, dual native ISO technology is a unique way of exploiting a camera sensor information to extend its dynamic range and reduce the level of signal noise that is produced. The sensor will therefore be able to read two native ISOs on the sensor instead of one. What type of ISO handling technology a camera uses affects the quality of its photos and videos at different ISO settings. For an ISO invariant camera, the signal is boosted digitally, meaning that the amount of noise is equal across all ISOs, says Syrup Lab. There isn't more noise at the sensor level because the sensor isn't becoming more sensitive to light, but the noise becomes more visible as the footage is brightened. A dual native ISO camera has two native ISO settings. Any ISO setting higher than the native base ISO setting and lower than the second native ISO will be digitally boosted. The result is that the higher of the two native ISO settings can actually display less noise than a digitally boosted lower ISO. For example, the Blackmagic camera's second native ISO is 1250, which shows less noise than ISO 1000 because ISO 1000 is the lower base ISO setting with significant digital boosting applied. Any ISO variant camera like the Canon R5 has different steps where the sensor appears to become physically more sensitive to light. In between steps, utilize digital processing to increase brightness. This means noise doesn't increase linearly, but has a stair-stepping change as ISO increases. So what should people do? In general, on all cameras, you want to shoot as bright as possible without clipping and then bring your exposure or grain down in post. This pushes your noise floor down, ensuring you have the best performance, and you'll often hear it called exposed to the right. This should be done through your lighting, and if you have to, your aperture and shutter speed, so you can shoot at your camera's native ISO, Syrup Lab recommends. When users have no option but to change their ISO to adjust the prevailing lighting, the recommended workflow depends on how a camera handles ISO. For an ISO invariant camera, or when shooting compressed footage, users should increase their ISO until the footage is correctly exposed in the camera. Increasing the brightness in post with an ISO invariant camera will result in noisier footage. 
When shooting on a dual native ISO camera, users are better off shooting at the second native ISO than shooting underexposed at the lower base ISO setting. Ultimately, ensuring that footage looks good in the camera is the best bet. On a camera with an ISO invariant sensor, adjusting the ISO on the camera has no impact on the camera's raw footage. It's just an in-camera indicator of how software will handle the footage during post-processing. The changes in the camera are just a preview. Syrup Lab produces a lot of content to help videographers, including some that Petapixel has featured, including a look at what makes lenses appear more cinematic, comparing different types of image stabilization, and tips for shooting appetizing food footage. And you can find all of those related articles in this article in the show notes for today's episode. And the last story for this week, photographer captures African tribal culture before it disappears. A photographer has spent five years documenting tribes in Africa before Western influences erode traditional culture. British photographer Terry Mendoza became interested in African tribal culture after going on a wildlife safari, which incorporated a side trip to several tribal villages. His amazing photos detail the beautiful attire and rich culture found in the remote areas of Kenya, South Sudan, Angola, and Ethiopia, something that Mendoza says is fast disappearing. Quote, what I discovered is that tribal dress and lifestyles have remained unchanged for hundreds and even thousands of years, he tells Petapixel. Tribal dress started to change once missionaries imposed a style of dress that accorded with their Western standards of modesty, often destroying tribal relics and beaded clothing, substituting football shirts in their places. However, Westernization in recent years has accelerated this cultural destruction. Roads have been built to areas that only had dirt tracks and grazing land turned into sugar plantations, Mendoza continues. In a number of tribes, only a few of the elders still dress traditionally, so I really wanted to capture their wonderful dress and culture before it is lost to, quote, progress. I am hoping that highlighting the issue may, in some small way, encourage countries to value and preserve their unique heritage, he says. I am conscious that our own presence could have its own negative impact, so we were sensitive to what we brought to these communities, often sacks or grain and oil and how we behaved. Our priority was to develop a rapport with people. It was never a run-and-gun activity. Mendoza shot the project on an Nikon Z7 II and a Z6 primarily with a 70-200 and a 24-70 mainly because the dusty environment precluded him from changing lenses. Quote, I found that even without a common language, the various tribes were very welcoming and spending time with them, I experienced a warmth and openness, he says. I have fond memories from Angola of sitting around our campfire on a dry riverbed and a small tribal group appeared out of the darkness and spent time sitting around the fire just enjoying one another's company. In Ethiopia, sitting with a group of mothers, showing them pictures of my own family, in so many tribes, there was spontaneous singing and dancing, not staged, and this was a delight, he says. I was privileged to witness and photograph a bull jumping ceremony, a rite of passage in Ethiopia, and a number of other rituals in the various visits. Mendoza is currently showcasing his five-year project at the Focal Point Gallery in Southern, uh, South End-on-Sea in the UK. Information for the exhibit can be found at the accompanying link. 
More of Mendoza's work can be seen on his Instagram and his website. And I think this is absolutely wonderful. And I think this was a great project for him to take on uh, because Western civilization is eroding a lot of ancient cultures from the face of the earth, which is very sad. Um, I know that we've had a very negative impact, not only on Native Americans, but it as mentioned in this article, African tribes as well. And I'm not saying that to get political or anything like that. I'm just saying it's sad because many of these ancient cultures have beautiful clothing, beautiful decorations, and a beautiful way of life that I really hate to see disappear in the name of quote-unquote progress. And that's all the news and rumor or news stories for this week. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of the previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 341 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, and hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new videos release. I also wanted to let you know that if you're not currently subscribed to the show, why not? It's absolutely free. It doesn't cost you a thing, but a minuscule second of your time to click that subscribe button and Tell your podcatching app to start downloading the back catalog of episodes that you can listen to at your leisure. I also wanted to encourage you to subscribe because the next two Thursdays, I have a couple of phenomenal interviews already recorded with amazing photographers. So for this coming Thursday, I will, uh, will be my episode where I sat down and had a interview talk with Richard Barnaby, who is a world-renowned travel, landscape, and especially wildlife photographer. He has captured stunning images all over the world. He's been to more than 65 countries, multiple continents, and he has captured stunning images for National Geographic, Time Magazine, and a plethora of other media outlets. He has also done work for brands such as Apple and many, many others. So you're definitely not going to want to miss that episode when he and I sit down and talk about wildlife photography. He is a truly amazing photographer, very talented, and a very great down-to-earth guy. He was a lot of fun to have on the show. It was great to just sit and talk to him for a little over an hour. And then the Thursday after that, you'll get to hear my interview with Jesse Fireisen, who is a toy photographer who is doing absolutely 
stunning work in toy photography, setting up scenes using action figures and models, and then shooting them, posing them, lighting them, making them look almost exactly similar to scenes out of popular movies, TV shows, and things like that. Jesse is insanely talented as well, just like Richard, and I guarantee you'll enjoy listening to both of those interviews. So definitely subscribe to the show if you're not already. All right, that's going to wrap this one up. I will see you all again on Thursday.